everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today on Everyday Injustice, we have Justin Brooks, who is the co-founder and director of the California Innocence Project in San Diego. Welcome to our show. It's my pleasure to be with you. So how did you get into this world of fighting uh, wrongful convictions? Well, uh, my sort of evolution as a lawyer began in law school. I I had an undergraduate business degree. I actually went to law school to be a corporate lawyer. And uh, my first year criminal law professor (laughs) took us out to a prison. I started talking to uh, some of the guys there. They asked me questions. I said I didn't have answers, but I would come back. And uh, I ended up teaching in a correctional facility when I was in law school. And it kind of pulled me into this whole world. And then after law school, I got a fellowship at Georgetown to run a prison clinic. And I did that for a few years while I also practiced as a criminal defense attorney in Washington, DC. And as I got into my career as a criminal defense attorney, I um, came across this case of Marilyn Malero, who was an innocent woman sitting on death row in Chicago. And, uh, you know, I investigated her case with some students. We discovered she was factually innocent. And with that case um, started my journey into the world of innocence work. And that was 25 years ago. Uh, so I started the California Innocence Project with my partner, Jan Stiglitz, 21 years ago. And so I've been doing this work for a long time. So can you describe how things have changed uh, since 1999 when you co-founded the uh, California Innocence Project? It's, <clears throat> it's overwhelming to me how much has changed in the past 20 some years and just in the past six months. Um, I think we've seen a shift in the public in terms of how they see these cases. You know, it used to be the arguments were about, are there innocent people in prison? And now it's just about how many and why and what we can do about it. So, you know, it, it, a couple of decades ago, we talked about Reuben Hurricane Carter. We talked about a handful of cases. But since then, we've had more than 2,500 documented cases of wrongful conviction in the United States. So it's just become undeniable. Close some things here so you're not hearing that beeping. Sorry about that. Um, And is that due to 
just DNA or is it more than just DNA? So I think the DNA cases kind of led the way for our work uh, because it was so definitive um, and it's the most powerful criminal justice tool of the last century. So I think once we had those first initial DNA cases, it was just impossible to argue any longer that there weren't innocent people in prison. And the first wave of our work was all DNA cases. Now that's kind of gone away. There's still some DNA cases and there's new technology with DNA that allows us to test smaller samples or do mitochondrial DNA testing on hair samples, things we couldn't do 20 years ago. But what DNA did is it opened the door for the courts to look at other cases because if there's innocent people getting convicted of murder uh, that can be proven innocent by DNA, then of course there's innocent people being convicted in other types of cases where DNA can't prove them innocent. So we started looking at recanted testimony. We started looking at other forensic sciences and we've seen it really broaden out to the point of my project, the California Innocence Project. We, have, uh, we only have a few DNA exonerations out of the 35 innocent people we've walked out of prison. Um, and, you know, one thing that really strikes me though, you know, when I read through some of the cases, some of the cases that have come uh, out of your office and elsewhere, it's really hard to get people exonerated. I mean, once they're in there, uh, you've really got to do something to get them out. It's, uh, <laughs> it's always hard to look at someone who's been in prison for 20 or 30 years and say, you're one of the lucky ones, but they really are. Um, and that's why we know that the more than 2,500 innocent people who've, who've been documented in the United States is just the tip of the iceberg. Because the lucky ones are the ones where the evidence hasn't been destroyed in their case, which most of the time it has, where they get a lawyer to listen to their claim, where they get someone to invest resources that they typically don't have into investigating the claim, where they get a judge to grant a habeas hearing, which is an extraordinary process and not part of a judge's regular you know, duties, where the hearing, you're able to bring in all the evidence you need and have the resources to do that. And then ultimately where you have a judge who has the courage often against strong political forces to grant the petition and declare someone innocent, which is basically once again, a statement that the system failed and various individuals in the system failed who may have a tremendous amount of political power. Um, police officers unions are very powerful. Prosecutors offices are very powerful. So it's running the gauntlet. And we've been lucky with 35 of our clients to be able to run through all those steps, but so many get stopped along the way by one of these many barriers. So uh, yeah. It's an understatement to say this work is difficult. Uh, once you've been convicted in the United States of America, it is very hard to unring that bell. And, you know, one, one problem I think a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, when you're initially tried, you have the pre presumption of innocence, but uh, whether or not that's real or not, uh, it flips uh, once you get uh, convicted, uh, then the courts assume that the jury got it right 
And so it's really hard uh, to convince them otherwise. Yeah, we bear the burden of proof. Um, so at trial, the prosecution's got to prove their case. And then typically in the cases we get, there'll be an initial appeal. Uh, the appeal is only for mistakes that were made at trial. And when we get the case, they've lost the trial, they've lost the appeal, and now we're in the habeas world. And in the habeas world, we got to bring in compelling evidence of innocence in order to get someone out of prison. That's why one of the first laws that I worked on in California were the preservation laws, because when we started the California Innocence Project, there were no laws preserving evidence after trial. And that's still true in a, in a number of jurisdictions in the United States. And uh, I oversee 25 innocence organizations in Latin America. And just yesterday, I did a presentation to a group of lawyers in Guadalajara and talked to them about how you need to get preservation laws in Mexico, because if there's no evidence, we can't do anything with these cases after people are convicted. So we have both the burden of proof, and then that means <laughs> we've got to bring in proof. We've got to bring in evidence that's going to counter what happened at trial. And that's very, very difficult when evidence has been thrown out, when we get obstructed by the police and getting the evidence, we get obstructed by prosecutor's office in getting evidence. And that's mostly what the work is to the California Innocence Project. It's our law students and lawyers are out looking for evidence. And once we find it, then we can go to court. But we look at thousands of cases a year and it's only in a handful of cases that we can put together that compelling evidence to get that person out of prison. And sometimes even when you do, uh, you get thwarted. So uh, one of the recent uh, people that finally got released, Joanne Parks, I read uh, the great book uh, about her, but um, you know the court didn't uh, accept your guys' arguments. It took the governor to commute the sentence. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So Joanne Parks is an arson case. And it is, and arson is one of the areas where we've learned a lot in the past 30 years. We've, we've learned a lot about how bad prior arson cases were prosecuted. I like to say that often fire experts are just bored firemen with time on their hands who love CSI, because whereas there are experts in that science, guys like John Lentini and guys who've studied this stuff and researched it and are educated on it. There's also a lot of people running around as fire experts who aren't really experts at all. And, in, and to give you one simple example, for a very long time, you would see these experts testify in court that wherever there was more than one point of ignition in a fire scene, that meant it was intentionally set. So if they examine the fire scene and, and they see, oh, a fire started in the kitchen and then a fire started in the living room, that means it must have been intentionally set because when it's electrical fire, it only starts in one location. What we now know is that fire jumps inside a house and we've done controlled burns to show how this works. So you can have a fire start in the living room and then the heat goes up to the ceiling and then it can start dropping fire around the house leaving the appearance later on that it was started in multiple locations. Now you can imagine if we believed for the last 200 years that any time there was multiple points of ignition, 
it was intentionally set. That's a lot of innocent people getting convicted. And we went back to court in Joanne's case. We brought in new arson science with new experts to counter the testimony at trial. And the judge just said, I, I don't think there's enough new stuff here to warrant reversal. And this, this is what we call the battle of the experts. Judges will often go to that point and say, well, one expert said one thing, another expert said another thing, I don't know. And they kind of throw their hands up. And again, because we have the burden of proof, if that evidence had come in at trial, there's no doubt that Joanne would have never been convicted, but it's not a trial. It's we're looking to reverse that decision. And we can only reverse that decision if the judge believes we have compelling new evidence that completely counters what happened at trial. Now, we believe that we do have that, but often judges just don't go down that road with us. And there's a lot of reasons, and sometimes they're very political reasons. Um, I'm not making that particular allegation in this case, but we should have won that hearing. We had the evidence to counter it, and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, Ed Humes, who kind of embedded himself in our office for a couple of years, he studied that case inside and out and knew it better than anyone. And he came to the conclusion that she shouldn't have been convicted. But ultimately uh, the governor uh, agreed and commuted her sentence. So at least it was a happy ending, even if it didn't end the way it should have ended. That's, that's the, uh, the safety measure on the system is the governor's commutation and pardon powers. Um, thank God we have it. But Again, if you want to talk about politics, that's one of the most politically abused things in the United States. Uh, I'm very proud of our current governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, and the way he's been utilizing it. But you see around the country, you know, governors giving clemency to friends of friends, people who are connected to law firms that have clients that donate money to the campaigns. I mean, if you follow the money trail on these things, it's outrageous. Uh, one governor just gave clemency to all the guys on work release who worked in his garden uh, without any looking at individual cases, whether they were more deserving than other people. Um, I, I did a TEDx talk on the power of clemency and pardon and, and how it's abused. Uh, it's, it's an important, powerful tool, and it should be used for the governor's offices to look where the courts fail and then come in and fix it. But that is not, not only is that not always the way it works, that's rarely the way that it works. Which is unfortunate. Uh, but I do want to go back to a point that you made. You uh, talked about just how bad fire experts have been. But one of the points that I like to make uh, is that really when you look at the work that Barry Sheck and uh, uh, has done with the Innocence Project and DNA is it's exposed just how bad the criminal justice system is in its entirety. Uh, we've been convicting people based on science that's not science. Um, you know, there, there have been all sorts of studies from the National Science Foundation about just how bad forensic evidence is. I've calculated that, you know, when you actually start looking at, at jury trials and you weed out the ones where it's really obvious who did it, um, it's almost a crapshoot as, as to whether or not the jury gets it right. And yet we have this, this kind of faith in the criminal justice system that's really not substantiated once you examine it. Uh, 
Can you talk to that? Absolutely. I, I think it's part of being an American that we like to believe we've got the best of lots of things. <laughs> and one of the things we talk about often is we have the best criminal justice system in the world and, and take a lot of pride in it. Um, I've worked all over the world. I, I work daily in Latin America uh, and uh, we don't have the best criminal justice system in the world. We don't have the worst, but we also don't have the best. I mean, when you look at what they do in Northern Europe, it's far superior to our system. But when you look at some places in Latin America where I work, we're doing a much better job. Um, the scientific evidence stuff has been a big problem in that jurors get dazzled by science and often it's just not science. You just throw an expert up on the stand. And the example I'll give you is forensic odontology, bite mark experts. Uh, they put these guys on the stand. They've got resumes that are 30 pages long. They're, you know, but in the, in the end of the day, they're basically dentists. And again, like the arson experts, they're bored dentists with a lot of time on their hands who love CSI. <laughs> And they come in and start saying that they can make identifications based on, you know, bite marks. And sometimes we find later it's not even a bite mark or it's a bite mark from a dog. Uh, it's it, and people start confusing it with dental records or as dental records are when you look at x-rays at people's fillings and fillings are all unique because dentists basically drill until they get the bad stuff out and then fill your tooth with metal. So if you look at that x-ray and you blow it up a hundred times, you can see tiny little ridges and distinctions that allow you to identify a body based on a dental record. They start confusing that with a bruise on someone's arm that isn't even a bite mark. It's the bruise that resulted from the trauma. It's extraordinarily vague. Most of them look the same. And it's basically voodoo science, it's not real. But jurors have trouble distinguishing between the real and the not real, the junk science and the valid science. And even sometimes when it's a valid science like DNA, DNA is only as good as the people who collect it, the people who do the testing and the people who read the results because there can be all kinds of problems along the way with that. There can be contamination in the process. So. Jurors aren't scientists, and they're not going to analyze this evidence the way a scientist will. And so we get a lot of mistakes. And I think, yeah, we've got to wake up to that and, um, and see that the criminal justice system has a lot of flaws, even if everybody tries to do their best work. And, and this is something as I get older, uh, I'm growing to believe more and more. When I was a young lawyer, I was, you know, in there saying these guys are corrupt and these guys set my client up and these guys are bad guys. I think most people in the criminal justice system, and again, most, because there are certainly the horrible and the corrupt, most people get up every day and try to do the best they can. But the problem is life is a bell curve. And whether you're talking about plumbers or electricians or lawyers or judges or jurors, it's a bell curve, meaning, all percentage who are outstanding at what they do. There's most who are good to okay. And there's some that are horrible and terrible. <laughs> and I think that's what we need to look at is saying, of course, there's gonna be mistakes. The bell curve tells us there's gonna be mistakes. 
because even when people try to do their best work, there's still a lot of mistakes that are made. And that's what we see every day in our office. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a fair assessment from what I've seen in courts for the last 15 years. But one question I, I, I have is, do we have an idea of what the error rate is? Because I've seen estimates all over the place from as low as you know, 0.01% to as high as 10%. Do we know what that error rate is? Well, here's what we know. We know that 4% of the people in the United States who are sentenced to death will ultimately death row after finding of innocence. Now that is an extraordinarily powerful statistic if you think about the nature of death penalty cases. Death penalty cases get the most lawyers on them. The ABA standards say a minimum of two defense attorneys. Prosecutors' offices put all their resources into them. They get the most publicity. They get the most scrutiny by the public. Um, they're required to be bifurcated processes where you have a guilt-innocent phase and then a separate sentencing phase. You get automatic review because the Supreme Court mandated it to the state Supreme Court of every single death penalty conviction, whereas very few other criminal cases ever get reviewed by the state Supreme Court. And even in those cases that got the most resources, the most attention, and the most due process, we still got it wrong 4% of the time. So I don't know what the number is. But I'm, I'm telling you, if we're getting it wrong 4% of the time in death penalty cases, how many times are we getting it wrong in simple assault cases, simple drug possession cases, cases that get almost no scrutiny, cases that are almost always pled out, cases where there's almost no investigation? It has to be a higher rate than that. So I could easily accept a rate of 10% or more um, if we really found out the truth. But we don't know what that number is exactly, but we certainly have a lot of guideposts to look at. And one thing we definitely know is it's not the 2,500 people who have been documented cases of innocence. It infuriates me when people use that number to say, ah, 2,500 people innocent out of millions of people in the system. It's a tiny number. That number is meaningless. Because if you do this work, I know every single day I'm turning down people for representation, not because I don't believe they're innocent. It's just, I know we won't be able to prove it in our current system. And that's the majority of the cases that we look at, what's hap what happens to them. And, and you hit on uh, another issue that a lot of people I think uh, gloss over is the percentage of people that are pleading out, which is 97% of all cases don't even go to trial. And, and we still have a high percentage of those people that are innocent, but they're taking plea agreements, maybe because they're afraid they're gonna get convicted or uh, maybe because they're getting pressured into it. But that's a unacceptably high number, wouldn't you say? It's a crazy number. It's, it's gotten crazy. And, you know, I've been practicing criminal law long enough to see the whole evolution, how we ended up here. Uh, and what basically happened was over the last few decades in the war on drugs, we increased the amount of people in the system by such exponential numbers that the system couldn't handle it. And because the system couldn't give trials to the overwhelming majority of people in the system, we started having all these plea bargains happen 
And the other reason it happened was because sentences kept going up and up and up. And when you're a criminal defense attorney, and I've sat in those rooms with clients when we're staring down huge potential sentences and talking to my clients about a plea arrangement. And it's, it, it, it ultimately becomes a business decision, not a decision of whether or not you're innocent or guilty. It's about whether you're gonna cut your losses or not. And that's why I thought it was very important um, the movie Brian Banks. And Brian was one of my clients. He pled uh, and was sent to prison for six years for the kidnapping and rape of a fellow classmate in his high school in Long Beach. Um, Brian was one of the best football players in the country. He was on his way to USC on a full scholarship. He had Pete Carroll coming out to his practices. He had his whole life ahead of him. And one day, this 15-year-old girl, his classmates, and Brian was 16, says, Brian dragged me to the stairwell and raped me. There was no investigation done into the case. He sat in a juvenile detention facility for a year waiting trial. And on the day of trial, his lawyer said, look, it's an all-white jury in there. You're a big black teenager. I think we're going to lose this case because it's going to be your word against hers. And you're looking at 40 years to life in prison if we lose. If you take a deal right now, I, I might be able to get you probation. If I get you probation, you'll be going home. You'll be playing football. You get life back on track. He says, can I talk to my parents? I don't know what to do. And he's crying. And she says, nope, you got 10 minutes to make up your mind. That, I was so happy that that story got made into a movie. is because that's what people need to see about the American criminal justice system. We see all these movies and TV shows about trials and everybody getting trials. This is not the reality. The reality is, People sitting in jails with their lawyers, cutting deals to cut their losses. And when I first got out of law school, you weren't looking at crazy differences like that, like possible probation or the rest of your life in prison. It was more like, if we take this deal, we could get a three to five. If we don't take this deal, you're looking at an eight to 10 if we lose at trial. And then somebody's making at least some kind of cost-benefit analysis and risk analysis. But in Brian's case, and in many of these cases, it's like walking into a doctor's office and them saying, the doctor says, you're gonna be dead in 10 minutes if you don't have surgery right now. What do you wanna do? It's, it's ultimately not a choice. So I think it is an important story. I, I hope uh, people see it. It's actually playing on Hulu right now in the United States and then Netflix around the world. And it was in the theaters last summer. But these, it's important to see these stories about the reality of our criminal justice system, not the fiction that's often portrayed in movies and television. You know, um, and I was going to ask you about Brian anyway, so we can jump in. But, you know, to me, uh, his case just, you know, if, if you want to highlight key points, key problems in the criminal uh, system, uh, his case really has it all. Um, you know, but one of the crazy things is that, you know, you, it's easy to paint the attorney in that case as the bad guy, uh, and maybe she is in, in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways, uh, she may have made the right call. If he gets convicted, um, it takes much longer for him to get out, uh, given how long it took uh, to exonerate him. You're 100% correct. Uh, and that's a message I tried to get out when Brian got exonerated. 
people want to pin this on the defense attorney and say like, well, this is one defense attorney who made a bad decision and it just fix that and then the problem goes away. That wasn't the problem. The defense attorney was telling them the truth. Um, she was saying, this is the sentence you're possibly facing. And maybe she overplayed the possibility of him getting probation and which ended up getting six years. And maybe she should have asked for some time for him to think about his decision. And of course I can Monday morning quarterback a lot of things about a defense attorney and what they do or didn't do. But the problem wasn't the defense attorney. The problem was a system that allows a 16 year old kid to be facing that kind of time and have to make that kind of decision. Um, it's absurd. And it's, by the way, uniquely American, because when I tell that story around the world, people are more shocked than they are in the United States because our juvenile system doesn't really function like a juvenile system. As soon as you commit what's considered an adult crime, now all of a sudden you're in adult court and we treat, we have this legal fiction like you just became an adult who can make adult decisions. Well, you don't become an adult with good capacity because you committed serious crimes. In fact, typically the opposite is true, that you've shown to be irrational and not have good reasoning skills when you commit those kinds of crimes. But that's where we're at in our criminal justice system. And it's mostly due to politics. Uh, politicians running on tough on crime platforms and wanting to punish these juveniles as adults. Uh, it's, it's, it's the most politicized area of the law, criminal law. And that's why it's the most screwed up because it's not thought through. It's not think tanks where people come up with good ideas. It's mostly created by politicians trying to run for reelection on tough on crime platforms. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Brian Banks case, I think I can kind of excuse the, the defense attorney in that case. The one that bothers me is the one out of Alabama, Anthony Ray Hinton, where, um, you know, he meets his attorney and his attorney uh, says, uh, I'm only getting paid a thousand dollars for this case and I eat a thousand dollars for breakfast, uh, you know, uh, and, and then, you know, he didn't even know that he could uh, apparently ask for more money for uh, an investigator. So he only paid uh, $500 for the investigator and he's doing like, uh, uh, gunshot uh, uh, stuff, and uh, the guy's like blind in one eye. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's just an absurd case, uh, and the guy ends up spending, uh, you know, almost forty years in prison. Mm -hmm. you know, Brian's really lucky, uh, unfortunately, because you know he he got out in uh, six. Uh, some of these people are in there for decades. Yeah, Brian has actually said that to me. He um, the first time he came and visited and he walked through the hallways he said he saw the pictures of all the people he got out of prison and guys like Mike Hanline who did 36 years in prison and he said you know until that moment I, I kind of thought I was alone in this and that there weren't all these innocent people and then he went to our national conference and met all these people that had done decades in prison so yeah again in some ways he's lucky uh, he's not as lucky as you and me who haven't been in prison for something we didn't do, but along uh, in the, the, you know, in the world of exonerees, he didn't lose the rest of his life. Um, yeah, it's, it, it is systemic. And I think we need to look at that stuff. You know, you just mentioned about the pay 
of attorneys and, and what happened in that case, the Hinton case. Uh, when I practiced in Michigan, in one jurisdiction, when I picked up a case, I got a flat fee. And in another city, I got paid by the hour. And so you wanna talk about another cause of plea bargains? You tell lawyers you're gonna get a $1,000 flat fee for a case, or you tell them you're gonna get $100 an hour for your work on a case. Which do you think is more likely gonna result in plea bargains, even if people are well, very well-intentioned? You've created this incentive to plea a case out, cut your time, you know, do the deal in a few hours, pick up your $1,000 check. Whereas if you went to trial, it could cost you your business. You could spend months on a case and now you get $1,000 paid for. And in the 35 innocent people we've walked out of prison at the California Innocence Project, almost every one of them was represented by a private lawyer. Only a couple were represented by public defenders. And I like to talk about that because I think there's a real stereotype about public defenders that they're not as good as private lawyers. But public defenders have training, have experience, have supervision, and have investigators on their payroll. And oftentimes we get cases from small practitioners that don't have investigators. The family only has limited money to pay. So they know there's only so much resources going into this case and they don't have supervision and they don't have the level of experience that a public defender might have. So it is true that public defenders are overworked and underpaid. A lot of times you're better off with that public defender than going out and trying to find yourself a private lawyer, unless you have a lot of resources. I mean, if you got $200,000 to spend on your case and you can say, I'm going to buy this lawyer's time for the next year to do nothing but work for me, go for it. But that's not the case with most people. They, they take what little savings they have and they throw it at a private attorney and that private attorney may not be the right person for the case. And I'm really glad you brought up this point. I actually tweeted something like this week um, because we in my county we've identified 15 potential wrongful conviction cases 14 of them were represented by somebody other than the public defender's office and it's exactly what what you say everybody thinks oh i need to mortgage my house pay all this money for a, a private attorney and then what they find out is they don't actually have all the resources to do everything so they can't pay for the investigators or some of uh, them just hired people that they should never have hired. Like uh, this one guy hired this attorney and, you know, his mother uh, sunk their, their life savings into it. And uh, the attorney was awful and he ended up getting disbarred later for a different case. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it, it's just bad where, you know, uh, public defenders, uh, a, um, you know, a lot of them are really good, by the way, mm -hmm. um, which goes against the stereotype. B, they have, uh, at least in California, they have full uh, um, you know, ability to uh, hire investigators and they have in-house investigators. So they have the resources to investigate the cases. C, and this is a point that a, a lot of people don't understand, they understand the, the legal system in the county. Mm -hmm. So if you come into my county and you're a private attorney, you're going to get buried in this county. Whereas if you uh, are a public defender, you know how to deal with the DAs and the judges. And so I, I see private attorneys all the time come into my county and they get run over 
uh, because no. they're not used to it. it. It's just a little bit different uh, than, than even across the river in Sacramento. Um, and so, uh, yeah, um, uh, sorry, I get passionate about this point, but I feel like public defenders get, get the short end of the stick and yet they're the ones that uh, are really fighting this battle on the front lines. Oh yeah, and they're not easy jobs to get. It's another stereotype is like, oh, they're really bad lawyers go to be public defenders. It's not true at all. They are difficult jobs to get. They're very competitive. Um, the people who go into it are very passionate uh, or they would do something else if they weren't passionate about the work. They would choose, it's because it's not an easy job. It's a very difficult job, a very consuming job. And so, yeah, I agree with you. It's uh, public defenders are often maligned. I mean, another example of that is the Marilyn Malero case, the death penalty case that got me into this work in Chicago. Marilyn had been assigned one of the best public defenders in Chicago who had done hundreds of homicide cases. And her friends said, no, you need a real lawyer. She fires her public defender and she hires some guy in the neighborhood who had no business involved in this case. They give him a $10,000 retainer. And for that, he pleads her out and she gets the death penalty on a plea bargain. Uh, it's story, there's story after story after story about, and it all comes back to the same thing. And so people really need to think about it. Um, so I'm wondering, I mean, how do we fix? Because what I see is that once you get into the system, it's almost impossible to get out of it. It sounds like you have the same experience. How do we fix this? Well, it's a many year process and I've actually, to be optimistic, I'm seeing some positive steps in the right direction. Um, the public is finally getting to the point where they realize that we can't afford the criminal justice system that has been sold to us for the past several decades. Um, since Willie Horton, uh, which people are old enough to remember, when Mike Dukakis was running against George Bush the first, uh, someone in uh, George Bush's campaign came up with a great idea of let's go find a parolee who's committed a violent offense from Massachusetts. And since Mike Dukakis is the governor of Massachusetts, we can then blame him because he's technically responsible for paroling people. And Mike Dukakis was way ahead in the polls, but ends up losing the election. Um, Bush's tough on crime rhetoric becomes standard where all around the nation, people realized, politicians realized that you don't wanna be a peer to be soft on crime. And so they started selling that. And that involved increasing police forces, uh, increasing sentences, building prisons. And we created this giant industry of prisons and policing. Well, we got to a breaking point in California. I think it was during the last budget crisis when we had to cut a billion dollars out of the UC system that people started looking and said, where is this money going? And saw that the money was going to our prison and corrections because California in the country with the largest prison system in the world, California is the state with the largest prison system. And we've started to see some movement in the other direction where we're seeing sentence reduction. We saw reform of the three, three strikes law. We've seen George Gascon elected district attorney in Los Angeles, a true reformer district attorney. Um, we're seeing movement in the right direction. And why I say this is what we need to do first is because we're at a point 
where we don't have the resources to make much change. And until we free those resources up, we won't have a better criminal justice system. But if we can get people out of prison on drug charges, which they're filling all the beds with people with drug offenses, if we can decrease the sentences, if we can have alternatives to incarceration, then we can start focusing on the cases at a closer level. We can drop the plea bargain rate and we'll start making fewer mistakes. Um, I, I use the analogy often of when, when, you're, when you make furniture, let's say you're hand making chairs and they're beautiful and people start buying them from you and you go from selling one chair a week to one chair a day to one chair an hour, at a certain point, you decide, you know, we got to start ma manufacturing these chairs in a factory because we can't make them handmade anymore. And when you start manufacturing in a factory, you start having mistakes. They're not as good. They're not as perfect. That's what's happened in our criminal justice system. The bigger it gets, the more it becomes a factory and the more it becomes processing cases through as quickly as possible. And that's why the mistakes happen. So I think we're seeing some movement in the right direction for the first time in a very long time. And I'm saying going back to the 1980s. Um, and I think this podcast, what you do, getting messages out about problems in the criminal justice system gets the voters to start voting for politicians and policies that are about reform and as soon as the politicians see that that's the way to go, that's the way the wind is blowing, then that's the way they're gonna go. Uh, but I think another thing we gotta be cautious about is there seems to be a shift away from the criminal justice system and now the money is being poured into the immigration system. So now they're building immigration detention facilities and now you, know, you see politicians running on tough on immigration policies and that's also driven by money and corporate interests. So we got a lot of work to do, but <laughs> I think we're starting to see some changes that are positive. Well, I think we will stop this show on a positive note for once. Uh, so I wanna thank you for coming on, taking time out. Uh, didn't get to ask you uh, about your uh, current cases, but we'll do that next time. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. And if people wanna read about our current cases, they can go to CaliforniaInnocenceProject.org or follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook at Justin O. Brooks. Thanks. This has been Everyday Injustice. That was Justin Brooks. He's the founder and director of the California Innocence Project. And I am David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.